electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Carl Quintanilla. You're listening to CNBC's Tech Check. Our show is live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. Good Tuesday morning. Welcome to Tech Check. I'm Deirdre Boza with John Fort. Carl is off. We're going to start with the debate for tech investors. New filings reveal shorts and Apple. Big losses for Tiger Global. Meanwhile, fund managers like David Tepper adding to positions in both Alphabet and Amazon. So who is on the right track here? Wolf this morning calls those two stocks and Meta its top picks in the second half. John Wolf did lower its price target for Amazon, though, and had this in that note, which I think is interesting, expects, quote, many companies to revisit their investment plan. So we could see some more action, some more downside, at least in terms of that OPEX and CAPEX. Yeah, absolutely. And and life coming at us fast as we track the markets these days. Got to keep in mind these 13 Fs are from Q1, which feels like a lifetime ago. The right move in tech in Q1 was to buy nothing, really. I mean, uh, (laughs) Alphabet, Amazon, both cheaper today than they were at any point in Q1. If you caught the very lows in Meta, though, which I think were around, what, 186, then you're better off there. Apple peaked at $3 trillion. At the very beginning of the year, the $3 trillion market cap level, it's well below that at about 2.4. But that doesn't mean you want to short it here, D. Uh, mm-hmm. So I think reading 13S is a little bit like DVRing a playoff game and watching it a day later. It's good for the highlights, but not so much for placing bets. <laughs> but, uh, you know, Leslie always does a, a good job yeah. framing that for us. Leslie Picker. It, it kind of tells you, too, you know, how much the market has come down because those numbers were so different at the end of the first quarter. As you said, John, though, many said that maybe you just wanted to hold cash and that would have been a good bet. Meanwhile, we've been talking about it. Growth stocks, they have been grinding lower all year. Uh, so some of those major funds did cut their exposure in Q1. Leslie Picker has more on those moves. Leslie. Deirdre and John, don't worry, I've got my DVRs all set so we could go through these filings simultaneously. Uh, They were due last night, painting a picture of how fund managers have been trading the tech volatility of 2022. And as you can imagine, there was quite a bit of selling across the board there. That was especially true in more of the growth-focused funds that have seen dramatic declines in performance this year. Tiger Global was down 34% during the first quarter of the year, according to a source. And based on the firm's 13F filing, it appears that they sold down quite a bit of their tech portfolio. Tiger exited a firm, Airbnb, Bumble, Dropbox, Duolingo, Marketa, Netflix, and PayPal during the quarter. That was just a select few names that we chose to highlight here. Well-known managers had mixed trades with regard to big tech, though. Appaloosa's David Tepper pairing back Google parent company Alphabet and Facebook parent Meta, but Tepper added to Amazon and Microsoft. The big short investor Michael Berry had a bet against Apple during the first quarter, owning about 2,060 put contracts with a notional value of $36 million at the end of March. But Berkshire Hathaway added to Apple during the quarter, buying another 3.8 million shares, adding to his very, very large holding there, adding to Berkshire's very large holding there. 
Reminder though, guys, that these positions are as of the end of March. They may have changed in the six weeks since then. They also don't disclose short positions, just long equities and certain options exposure. But if you're looking through these filings, you're looking for more buys here, Tiger did add to its position in Block as well as CrowdStrike. And of course, Berkshire, Berkshire's investment in Paramount, the new Viacom CBS uh, company that has that stock up about 12 and a half percent this morning on that revelation. So yes, backdated, but as you can see there from Paramount at least, uh, still market moving, guys. Yeah, and that's particularly interesting, that Paramount move, Leslie, to me, because um, mm -hmm. that, that puts it, the pop today, right around the levels where it was trading, uh, at least at the beginning of the year. I, I don't suppose we know exactly mm. what level Berkshire got in at, but it suggests that he and Berkshire writ large are seeing some value perhaps in media library here when media has been selling off so much in this market. Yeah, media has been selling off and we did see a lot of more kind of bearish indications from the filings with media at large as well. You saw, for example, uh, I mean, maybe not bearish, but Tryon's Nelson Peltz did exit NBC parent company Comcast during the quarter. That was about a billion dollar bet. As of the end of last year, a lot of managers either exited or pared back their stakes in Disney during the quarter. Um, so there were a lot of media-related plays that were pretty sizable uh, that we saw pop up in these filings. Leslie, thank you very much. Uh, meanwhile, as well, we're taking a look at Chinese equities. They have been popping this morning. JD.com was higher, reversing early gain, earlier gains. Now it is lower again, I believe, yes, by almost one percentage point. Um, the rest of the Chinese internet sector, though, last we looked, was rallying. We'll see if that's volatile also. Uh, JD.com, though, the e-commerce company, reporting a revenue jump of 18% year over year. Of course, this sector has been hit hard by the Chinese government's crackdown on private enterprise. Uh, and some incremental headlines from regulators today signaling that the worst of the Chinese crackdown may actually be over. Yesterday, J.P. Morgan, we brought you this upgrading several names in the space. J.D., not one of them. They like Meituan, NetEase, Alibaba, Pinduoduo, among others. And there you see it, Alibaba up another 6% today. Uh, this idea, John, that Dan Niles brought up yesterday, I thought was very interesting. So he is now buying Chinese names that have been absolutely slaughtered over the last year. But when we asked him, would you buy American names that have sold off as much? He said no, because what Beijing taketh away, it can giveth. If you look at stocks here, they're more directed by the Fed, and the Fed right now is taking away. So the calculus, very different. If you actually think that Beijing and the Chinese regulators are going to make life easier for these tech giants. Still hard to find a narrative in all this, though. I mean, you know, uh, a cold shower uh, the markets took uh, since the open. I mean, the Nasdaq has lost about half of its opening pop already. Yeah. Home Depot you know, uh, was a strong Dow performer uh, off the top, and it seems to have lost its gain. You know, Walmart seemed to, to disappoint, whereas Home Depot had stronger earnings. Both of them, when I last looked, were in the red, though blink in this market and something will change, Dee. <laughs> One thing is guaranteed in the market these days, John, and that is volatility. So certainly playing out once again today. Uh, so in terms of ideas, should you be turning global? Our next guest thinks that value is still number one, saying his strategies are as bearish on U.S. stocks as possible. Joining us now, Cambria Investment Management founder and CIO Meb Faber. Meb, good morning to you. What does that mean, as bearish as possible? Are you looking internationally? looking resources that, that that sounds so sad and depressing you guys are going to stop <laughs> having me on uh with such an intro like that but um look our largest fund it. is the stock our largest fund is the stock fund a long only stock fund so I'm, I'm not just talking my book here but 
to all the strategies we have, there's two pillars. There's the value side, and then there's the trend and momentum side. The bad news is across the board, they're saying red flashing light to U.S. stocks, okay? And on top of that, red flashing light to tech stocks too. So um, the funds that we have that can be 100% hedged are. The funds that we have that can be momentum and trend are not investing in U.S. stocks with the exception of energy and materials, right? It's a lot of commodities. The value strategies are avoiding tech stocks. I think there's only like five that we own or something. And it looks like names from like 1999. It's like HP and Xerox, none of the kind of high flyers. So, um, but this makes sense, you know, to me in this environment we're in, we're in an environment where stocks are expensive still, even though they're down some, long-term P ratio is around 30. That's for a normal inflationary environment where you have an average long-term P ratio of around 20. In the inflationary environment we have now, where inflation is up at 8%, the normal multiple you have is 10. So we're at 30, and normal average is 10. Now, you can make the reasons why that shouldn't be so, but historically, that's been the case. And so um, this setup is saying, look, if this is going to stick around, there's potential a lot further to go. And the, the thing we've been saying for the last couple of years is say, look, wait till the trend turns negative. These high flyers last year, year before, they can always go higher. But when the trend turns negative, it's time to get cautious. And that's been the case this year. Um, yeah, we're I down. mean, a lot of Mab, a lot of our guests have said that caution means holding on to cash in this inflationary environment. Is that sort of where you're heading as well? And I wonder your no. thesis. Does this assume a recession? No. So I'm probably the only person. There's two people that have this line of thought that I've ever met. And we have very different conclusions. Um, we did a post called uh, the Stay Rich Portfolio on my blog that examines cash as a safe investment. Everyone assumes cash is the safest investment. But if you look at cash on an after inflation basis, so going mm -hmm. back for the past 100 years, cash is lost in cash, meaning T-bills. So not, not just putting things under the mattress, but actually putting in T-bills. After inflation, at one point, you lose half. OK, and so we did a, a post that said you have to invest and it could be a global portfolio. It could be stocks, bonds. And we're saying that's struggling this year. And the third missing piece that almost no one has, unless you're Australian, unless you're Canadian, is real assets like commodities. OK, um, that portfolio historically has been safer, less volatile and a lower drawdown than cash has been over time. And you can mix it with cash. So you say, I'm going to invest half in cash, half in, in this global market portfolio has been a much safer alternative. Now, no one does that. I do it with my own mm. personal money. My company does it with our balance sheet. The only other person that invests their balance sheet that I've ever met <laughs> is Michael Saylor. Now, he comes to a different conclusion. He says, <laughs> cash is trash. I'm going to put it in crypto. Right. But this mm -hmm. line of thinking, by the way, is, is changing well, in a world of 8% of inflation. I mean, I, I don't know about, right, as you said, cash as an investment. But, you know, as some place to park, instead of doing something dumb, cash tends to work pretty well, right? Because it's not going to go down 50% in a few months, at least not historically. We hope not. It, it tends not to right. do that like uh, so many growth stocks and cryptos have. And so I wonder, when is it time to start getting, I mean, to, to use market parlance, greedy again? You look at some of these growth names that have from pretty strong underlying fundamentals, you know, in technology land, they have some pretty strong technology overall, and they're way, way down, sometimes more than 66%, 70%, 75-percent down. I mean, certainly at some point when the business is sound, the moats are real, there's an advantage there? For, for a long time, and this goes back to my very first book, Ivy Portfolio, we did studies that show 
what what is it when you buy an asset class, a sector, an industry when it's down 60, 70, 80, 90%? And historically, you close your eyes, hold your nose. It sounds insane, but you buy for three to five years. That usually works out. And so over the past five, six years, that's been a lot of the ag and energy complex. It was coal stocks. It was uranium stocks that had just been absolutely decimated. And here we are in 2022 talking about energy, having amazing returns when two years ago it was negative. So there is a point when that will probably happen. Um, On the tech side, we're finding a lot more opportunity going to your last guess um, in emerging markets, right? Emerging markets, we have a huge overweight in tech and emerging versus the U.S., which is only like a 5% weight. So value opportunity there, but a lot of those markets have been really beaten down too. Yeah, and the tech plays over there are not doing particularly well, um, but maybe an opportunity. Med Faber, thank you so much for being with us today. We'll talk to you again Good soon. Meanwhile, two of America's biggest retailers reporting this morning. We've got a snapshot into how consumers are shopping online. Courtney Reagan has more on both Walmart and Home Depot, what that signals for the market. Courtney. Hi, Yeah. So Walmart and Home Depot have each spent billions of dollars building out their digital capabilities. And while both are still seeing e-commerce growth, it has definitely slowed from the pandemic-fueled surges of the last couple of years. And stores remain key fulfillment hubs for both. So Walmart's first quarter U.S. net e-commerce sales grew, but just 1% like last quarter though they were up or are up 38% on a two-year basis. During the quarter, Walmart lost its large Indianapolis fulfillment center from a fire, and e-commerce was part of the gross margin drag. Now, like Amazon, Walmart sells items online itself and through a huge marketplace. So those marketplace items cannot be bought in stores, but can be returned there. And Walmart said that more shoppers are returning to stores. But more than half of Walmart sales are food, remember, and its online grocery program for pickup or delivery has been a large growth driver across the business. Food sales were strong in the first quarter. Home Depot's digital sales grew 3.7% after growing 6% in the fourth quarter, 9% for all of last year. Around half of Home Depot's online orders are fulfilled by its stores. That's really key for both the pro customers and the do-it-yourself shoppers that need materials to complete a project ASAP. Back over to you guys. Courtney, so I'm wondering about strategic advantages that these companies, Walmart and Home Depot, might reap from their technology and e-commerce experience over the last couple of years. In Walmart's case, even as they're getting pinched by uh, inflation with food, they've got a lot of demand out of that business uh, as as consumers are cash strapped. So are they going to be able to get them into a repeat cadence that benefits them digitally? And, And same, I guess, for Home Depot. Yeah, that's a really good question, John. And I think part of Walmart's plan to do exactly that is that Walmart Plus program, that membership program that offers shoppers a bunch of different benefits, including free and fast delivery, as well as a number of other things. And Walmart really didn't get into that so much this time on the call because there were so many other external factors really pressuring profitability that the investment community was more interested in. But Walmart has really been investing in the general merchandise categories, the long tail of the online area. So apparel and home goods, things that have a higher margin to help bring up the margins because Walmart is such a big seller of food. And so I think we just have to remember that these last two years were just so, so strong for Walmart because all of us were trapped at home. We had to turn more to e-commerce. And now as Walmart is seeing (laughs) a lot of these shoppers are going back to the store. So what does that mean for e-commerce going forward? I think shoppers are using both together. 
Well, we'll see if this margin hit in tough times translates into loyalty. Courtney, thank you. Also this morning, Julia Borston unveiled CNBC's 10th annual Disruptor 50 list, her ranking of the fastest growing private companies challenging public incumbents and set to be perhaps the next generation of big IPOs when we're doing that again. Julia, back on set again. Great to have you. Um, what's on the list? Well, John, we selected 50 companies from over 1,400 nominees, and the number one company on the list is Flexport, a logistics company that's battling the global supply chain crisis and transforming a trillion-dollar industry by tracking and streamlining the movement of cargo across ships, planes, trucks, and rail for more than 10,000 clients and suppliers. It's followed, number two, by Brex, a fintech company offering financial services to startups. Then another logistics company is in the third spot, Lineage Logistics. It uses a proprietary freezing process to improve food supply chains, works with hundreds of facilities across North America, Europe, and Asia. The number four is graphic design platform Canva, Number five is Guild Education. It works with companies to offer their workers debt-free college education. Now, logistics is the top category on the list with 10 companies total, including Convoy and Flock Freight. They work to minimize empty space on trucks. And Zipline and Airspace, their focus is on time-critical logistics for the likes of medicine and even transporting organs. Now, FinTech is in the second spot, with nine companies on the list, including eight-time disruptor Stripe and rival Checkout.com. And Web3 is well-represented among the newcomers on the list. Blockchain.com, MoonPay, Dapper Labs are on the list for the first time, along with Canva, which is a first-timer, and digital healthcare startup Row. Coming up later in the show, we'll have the CEO of the number one company on the list, Flexport, and you can find the whole list and a whole lot more about the underlying tech trends on CNBC.com slash disruptors. John? Julia, forgive me if I'm wrong here, but two female founders, CEOs in the top five, Canva and Guild Education, that happened before? I, not in the top five, but we have had a number of female CEOs on this list. This year, we have eight companies that are led by female CEOs, and that's better representation than the percentage of female CEOs that draw venture capital funding. So some positive trends there on the list and really remarkable companies. I mean, these are game-changing companies, and I would point out that a number of the companies on this list have a focus on a social or environmental purpose in addition to making money, and more of the female-led companies have that focus. Julia, the makeup of the list broadly is so fascinating. I mean, the fact that you have more logistics and supply chain focused startups in this moment. I remember a few years ago when you had all of the sort of consumer disruptive companies like Uber and Lyft and Didi. Um, it kind of feels like the companies this year are positioned well for this moment when we are seeing money um, more scarce than it has been over the last few years in the private markets. Um, I know we're going to be talking to Ryan Pedersen later. Um, what do they think? In terms of their IPO plans, or what are you thinking? The window is so shut, but we have Instacart filing confidentially. What's it going to take to get that open? It certainly feels like the, the window is not particularly open right now when it comes to IPOs. But I think that you are right, Deirdre. We saw all those consumer-facing IPOs. Even if you look at the fintech space, companies like Robinhood, they've already gone public. And now we're looking at a lot more of these B2B companies. Even in the fintech space, they're really more focused on the infrastructure. Um, and even companies like Flock Freight and, and these other 
other uh, these other infrastructure companies to deal with um, the logistics of infrastructure. Those are also tend to be more B2B oriented, though we do have the likes of GoPuff, which is using logistics to deliver things very quickly to consumers. Mm -hmm. I think that we're seeing companies hold on and hold back. Their valuations as private companies are much higher than comparable companies in the public market. So I think for now, we're likely to hear them say they're going to hold off. But we certainly should ask about this later. Yeah. GoPuff at 27. That's one that's got to watch out. Well, what's really interesting is this is a company that's innovated by using so much data that it has about right. what consumers want to make products themselves and improve their margins. They got to be careful not to go poof, though. But we're <laughs> going to have you back uh, talking to Flexport uh, real soon. Different kind of logistics. Uh, Julia, looking forward to that. As we head to break, a check on the NASDAQ. Losing some steam in the early trade after a pop at the beginning uh, of the session and rising yesterday, and then still to come. Does Elon Musk have buyer's remorse? Twitter seems to be moving forward with the deal. So should you buy as the stock falls? Well, we'll discuss. Tech Check, just getting started. Feel the pulse of the city. Feel the beat of the drum. Feel the bass blow your hair. In Las Vegas, live music delivers much more than sound. It's where music comes alive. With artists like Megan Thee Stallion, Maroon 5, Carrie Underwood, Shania Twain, Babyface, Lionel Richie, and many more. Every show is a playground for your senses. See the full summer lineup at visitlasvegas.com. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. We have some breaking news on a DOJ settlement and securities fraud. Our Leslie Picker is back with that story. Leslie, what's going on? Hey, Deirdre. Yeah, German insurer Allianz's asset management unit plans to plead guilty uh, to fraud, and, and Allianz will pay $6 billion in fines in connection with the complex options trading strategy that blew up during the March 2020 market turmoil. A billion dollars worth of those fines will go to the SEC and the rest is restitution to victims. According to the SEC, the trading strategy was marketed and sold to pension funds for teachers, clergy, bus drivers, engineers, and other individuals. The SEC's complaint was filed in the Federal District Court of Manhattan today and centers on Gregoire Ternant, who led the strategy known as Structured Alpha. The SEC said that he, along with a few other portfolio managers, quote, manipulated numerous financial reports and other information provided to investors to conceal the magnitude of Structured Alpha's true risk and the fund's actual performance. Because of its guilty plea, Allianz is disqualified from providing advisory services to U.S. registered investment funds for the next decade. Allianz said in a statement that these settlements, quote, fully resolve the U.S. governmental investigations of the structured alpha matter for Allianz. We reached out to Turnant for comment and are expecting a statement from him soon. Deirdre? And we know you'll bring that to us. Leslie Picker, thank you so much. And checking in on the latest with Elon Musk's Twitter drama, the Tesla CEO tweeting this morning that unless Twitter can prove that less than 5% of its accounts are bots, that the deal, quote, cannot move forward. Musk believes the number could be four times higher than Twitter's internal estimate 
based on an independent analysis from SparkToro and FollowerWonk, said yesterday at the All In Summit that the real number is, quote, as unknowable as the human soul. Regardless, Twitter is sticking to its guns. CEO Prague Agrawal defending the 5% number in a tweet thread yesterday. This morning, the company put out a statement recommitting to the deal. So what is motivating Musk's about face? That's what we all want to know. Platformers Casey Newton, he had an idea this morning. Analysts are saying that even if Musk were right, even if 40% of the accounts on Twitter were bots, it would not invalidate the deal for all the reasons that we've already discussed. It would not be seen as a material event under the terms of the contract. So the whole thing seems to be a sideshow to distract us from the fact that Elon has buyer's remorse. Yeah, uh, sideshow, John, I have a feeling you might agree with that. You did make a similar point yesterday. Um, so this is the $1 billion breakup fee, but there's more to it, too. There's legal action that the Twitter board could take. Well, I, I mean, it sounds like Elon's trying to get out of paying the, the breakup fee because he's saying, oh, well, they didn't represent things correctly. I mean, but this is ridiculous, right? Because in Elon's initial approach, he talked about bots and the need to contain bots. It's not like he just discovered bots, right, in due diligence after uh, inking this deal. And then look at the projections he has on how much he's going to increase usage of Twitter, how he's going to you know, boost subscribers and boost ad revenue. Uh, are we supposed to believe that that was somehow yeah. based on the bot number being lower than what he now imagines it to be? I mean, this reminds me, I love that movie Swingers from back in the 90s when they would, they would leave the bar <laughs> or club saying, this place is dead anyway. That's, <laughs> right? That's what he's doing. I, I need to go back and watch that one, I will admit. Um, but I will say, I, I appreciate Ben Thompson's strategy. I actually did some analysis this morning in his newsletter. He looked at, you know, if we are going to entertain Musk and what he's saying, how much of the community could actually be bots? He says there's a rule. I didn't know this. 91-90 ratio. 90% of participants lurk in social media. 9% comment. 1% post. Um, so an interesting ratio there if you're going to look at that figure. Uh, turning now to the video game sector, though. Take-Two shares are higher this morning, unless that has changed also, despite a miss on bookings in Q4. Analysts are anticipating a more upbeat outlook once its pending acquisition of Zynga closes. Steve Kovac has more on the quarter. Steve. Hey, D. Yeah, Take-Two Interactive shares rising today, despite missing those expectations last night and providing the light guidance. Revenues came in at $846 million, missing estimates of $882 million, and guidance for the fiscal year, which began this quarter, as much as $3.85 billion, just shy of the nearly $4 billion the street was looking for. Uh, following the same path we saw from Roblox and Electronic Arts last week, shares are rising despite these misses now that gaming companies have lapped themselves and comps from the hypergrowth during the pandemic start to look a little more normal. All three of these gaming stocks have been hammered this year. Take-Two is down nearly 40% before last night's report. Meanwhile, online gaming revenue was down 6%. Take-Two blaming that on competition from offline games. But it's that recurring online gaming revenue you'll want to watch moving forward as the company ships to mobile gaming. And that's what uh, Zynga comes in. Shareholders will vote to approve that $12.5 billion deal on Thursday, expected to go through. And Take-Two saying Zynga will help a larger percentage of revenue come from mobile, which is where the biggest growth in gaming is happening. Guys, back to you. Diversifying that portfolio. Steve, thanks. Yep. Uh, as we head to break, let's get a check on AMD. Upgraded to buy at Piper Sandler this morning. More on that call. That stock up a little better than 7%. Just a minute. Tech check. We'll be right back.
Feel the pulse of the city. Feel the beat of the drum. Feel the bass blow your hair. In Las Vegas, live music delivers much more than sound. It's where music comes alive. With artists like Megan Thee Stallion, Maroon 5, Carrie Underwood, Shania Twain, Babyface, Lionel Richie, and many more. Every show is a playground for your senses. See the full summer lineup at visitlasvegas.com. This podcast is brought to you by eHarmony, the dating app to find someone you can be yourself with. What makes eHarmony so special? You. No, really. The profiles and conversations are different on eHarmony, and that's what makes it great. eHarmony's compatibility quiz brings out everyone's personality on their profile and highlights similarities on your discovery page. So it's even easier to start a conversation that actually goes somewhere. So what are you waiting for? Get who gets you on eHarmony. Sign up today. Welcome back to Tech Check. I'm Deirdre Boza with John Fort. Markets are moving higher in the current session. The Nasdaq trying to make up some earlier gains. It's up about one and three quarters of a percent at the moment. The Dow up about 260. In just a moment, we will speak with Flexport's Ryan Peterson, the number one CNBC Disruptor 50 company this year. First, though, let's get a news update with Frank Holland. Frank. Hey there, Deirdre. Good morning. Here's your news update for this hour. Children aged 5 through 11 should soon be able to get a COVID booster. This morning, the FDA is authorizing a Pfizer shot at least five months after the second dose. The Centers for Disease Control will weigh in later this week. The expansion comes as cases increase, with New York City going to what it calls a high COVID alert level, urging residents to double down on protecting themselves. Retail sales increased 0.9% in April, slightly less than what the street expected. The gain indicates strong demand from consumers despite rising prices, but retail sales are measured in dollars. So those price increases are also partially responsible for that April gain. And the home builders are not happy about the prices they have to pay for building materials. They also don't like to pay higher interest rates. An industry sentiment index fell sharply in May, hitting a two-year low after five straight monthly declines. That's the very latest. Deirdre, back over to you. Frank, thank you very much. As I mentioned, stocks are broadly higher this morning. Sentiment has been negative, though, for the last few weeks as we have largely moved lower. The latest Bank of America fund manager survey shows that some of the highest cash levels since 2001, some of the biggest tech shorts since 2006. Our Mike Santoli is here with his own look at sentiment. Mike, what are you seeing? Yeah, I mean, I have a proxy for a certain kind of tech sentiment, and this is I'm going to keep highlighting this relationship for as long as it keeps working, which is Tesla versus NVIDIA. Uh, Late last year, they started really moving in sync. And here you see it over a one year basis. The uh, total uh, gain is still pretty strong, actually, relative to the overall market. But you do see them both more than 40 percent off their highs. What do they have in common? Well, they're both considered, obviously, kind of paradigm shift uh, proxies, charismatic leaders. They're kind of crypto adjacent category killers and creators in their own industries. Uh, But you see here, it's going to be a long way back. Obviously, uh, a lot of stocks have done worse than these two. uh, But it does show you that, you know, these kind of have these halting efforts at bottoms along the way. And we've made you know, lower low. So I think it's a net positive in general when you start to see active fund managers, as in that B of A survey, start to give up on the sector or feel as if it's not going to be helpful to their performance going ahead. The group has not become certainly cheap relative to the overall market, but a lot of work has been done on taking some of the valuation risk out of uh, the NASDAQ, John. Yeah, those are like synchronized swimmers, Mike. Uh, Thanks for pointing that out. Mike Santoli. After the break, this year's number one CNBC disruptor 50 company, Flexport, 
The CEO, Ryan Peterson, is with us. Don't go away. The wraps came off the CNBC Disruptor 50 list this morning. Flexport in at number one. And Julia Borston's with us with a special guest. Julia. Thanks so much, John. I'm joined now by Ryan Peterson, the CEO of Flexport. Ryan, thanks so much for being with us today. Congratulations on being number one on the Disruptor 50 list. Thank you all for, uh, for the honor. So, Ryan, before we get into your business, I want to get your perspective as someone who is seeing so much data about all the goods being moved around the world right now. We got some mixed results today from Home Depot and Walmart that give us sort of a mixed picture of where the consumer is. What's your sense of what consumer demand is right now based on how many things are moving around and how they're moving? Yeah, we're definitely seeing some slowdown in, in consumer demand, demand destruction, as they say. We're seeing warehouses are starting to really fill up. And, and actually, a lot of our cargo is coming out of the ports. The warehouses don't have any place to put it. So it's it's a, it's a pretty ugly situation out there, especially for kind of like direct-to-consumer brands that are newer and hotter and don't have a really long track record by which to forecast demand. I mean, it's, it's difficult for everybody coming out of the pandemic to make these predictions. But you've had such supply chain disruptions that – Getting the quantities right is really hard. You have these bullwhip effects where all of a sudden there's too much inventory in stock, and it's an, it's an ugly picture for a lot of companies. And what is the specific impact you're seeing from the Shanghai lockdowns? Is that having a specific ripple effect? Uh, yeah, you're seeing a little bit less production. Factories are not operating at 100%. been the trucking capacity. The port's actually running really smoothly in Shanghai. It's more factories are slowing down a little bit. Um, the early signs are that it's starting to open back up and companies are ramping back towards production. It's it's a little bit too early to say exactly what that bubble will look like, how many goods, the, the bubble in sense of all these orders that have been placed as those move through the system to come down. Uh, we'll know in a few more weeks. Hey, Ryan, it's John Ford. Good to see you again. Uh, we talked about a year ago and you were talking about, you know, high prices, which in a way are good for you, but also having to disappoint customers um, with, with the lack of capacity where do things stand now, now that, I mean, we've got supply chain issues, but they're different supply chain issues than we had a year ago? Uh, they are. So last year, Flexport had a waiting list, and we actually couldn't take more customers. We couldn't even serve all the customers we had. It's a little, you know, it feels a little odd to win this award as the number one disruptive company, when in fact, we don't feel like we're doing a good enough job on behalf of our customers. Well, the, the situation has definitely changed. Prices have come down. But um, even perhaps more importantly, you can get space now. There is capacity. Flexport's open for business, finally, uh, no longer having to put everybody on the wait list and can, mm. can serve customers. So we hope to see improvements in transit time as well as the, the lower costs coming down. Hey, Ryan, it's Dee. Uh, even Amazon, you know, is having trouble getting the quantities right. Last quarter, they talked about overcapacity in their warehouses. They operate in your space as well, freight forwarding. It's part of their, you know, enormous logistics juggernaut. What are you seeing? How are you looking at them as a player? Are they getting it right or more right in the freight forwarding space? I, I think Amazon's the best logistics company in the world. And, and I say that very humbly because I'd, I'd like Flexport to be the last, best logistics company in the world, but we haven't earned that right right now. I really look up to Amazon, um, try to learn as much as we can from how they operate. I think it's very metrics driven, very creative, entrepreneurial. There's still so much hustle in that company. So, but I'm, I'm too far away to comment specifically on like where the, what they're doing well and not well. I did read their report where they said they were over, had too much capacity and that's definitely a first for Amazon. So that's going to be pretty interesting. 
What's oh, sorry, the size ahead. of what's the size of their uh, their footprint in the space where you operate? Uh, I don't know the exact statistics in terms of how many containers they move. I don't have. I don't know. Ryan, in terms of your own business, though, you know, you've given us a good sense of the landscape. I understand you doubled your revenue last year. What's your outlook for your own growth this year? And it's still a very, very fragmented market. You just have a couple percent of market share. How much market share do you think you can gain? Yeah, so in um, 2019, the year before the pandemic, Flexport did $650 million in revenue. Last year, we did $3.3 billion. And this year, we're on track. Our current estimate is $5 billion for the year. So, you know, and yet we're still a tiny sliver. We think we're less than 1% or 2% of global uh, container shipping. And that doesn't count all of our other businesses, air freight, customs, cargo insurance. We have a trade finance group that does inventory financing. So, uh, you know, I mean, we could just be one of the biggest companies in the world if we live up to our potential. It's a lot to do, though. So earlier this year, Ryan, you raised over $900 million at an $8 billion valuation. I understand you're not under any pressure to go public, but I'm curious as you look at the volatility in the public markets, particularly in the past couple of weeks, what your plan is in terms of how you think about approaching an IPO. So at the end of last year, we we looked at the markets and I I thought that the market was kind of overheated. Uh, Both the freight market, the prices are so high, all the problems that we've described over the last year and the capital markets. And so we there was some pressure internally for us to go public. I mean, there's always that kind of people would love to see that, love to celebrate that. Uh, we decided better to stay private and yet we should put some money on the balance sheet given the, the craziness of the market. And so we're very, very happy that we did. We raised $935 million. That round closed in February. Our timing was pretty good. Sometimes it's better to be lucky than smart. Although we feel like we were we were kind of smart even though it was a lot of luck as well. Well, Ryan, uh, final question to you. I am going to ask you to make some predictions for the rest of the year. You mentioned how hard it is to predict anything with so many different macroeconomic factors in play. But what do you anticipate for this whole logistics market the rest of the year? Do you think we'll see some of the same bottlenecks that plagued the system last fall? Or do you think that people have learned from their mistakes last year? I think the one thing we can be sure of is the future will be weird and will surprise us. There's a couple of unknowns that are out there. So like in July, July 1st, the contract is up for a renegotiation for the uh, Longshoremen, the West Coast union that runs our ports. And so that's that's the big wild card. We're not really sure that's being negotiated as we speak. Uh, that could lead to a strike. It has in years past when the contract ended. Um, so that's probably the biggest wild card. And then what happens with COVID shutdowns all over the world, China, especially, we're obviously watching that closely, but anywhere in the world that can happen, uh, consumer demand, impossible to predict. So just many, many variables. The one thing though, is that's out there, the world's, uh, ocean carriers and the owners of the ships have ordered 25% more ships capacity for is coming online in the next three years. So where we've not had enough capacity and prices have been sky high, there's going to be more capacity in years to come. And you may find that the opposite problem is out there where the prices are so cheap that no one who owns a ship can make any money. And we've been there in the past, too. So uh, all things are possible. And it's it's uh, very hard to make predictions. Well, we'll be watching all that and more. And Ryan, I hope you will come back and talk to us more about these issues that have such wide effects. Ryan Peterson, thanks so much for talking to us today. Thank you for having me. And Julia, of course, great to have you as well. Uh, D50 coverage keeps on trucking all afternoon. Don't miss the CEO of Flock Freight on the exchange. I'll be guest hosting. That's at 1 p.m. Eastern. We'll be right back.
Welcome back. Time now for a gut check on AMD. Piper Sandler sees value upgrading from neutral to overweight with a $140 target. That's about 40% upside. Piper's bullish on the chipmaker's PC business, traction in hyperscalers and acquisition of Xilinx, saying they see cloud and enterprise tailwinds driving share gains as well. Shares are higher this morning on that call, up uh, almost 8%. And uh, D, this one was at 160 back in November. And certainly mm-hmm. a contrast to how Intel's doing. Uh, you know, say on pay, uh, <laughs> investors over there, shareholders saying, we don't yeah. like the way that you're trying to pay executives there. Well, also considering the performances of the stock price, I was looking, though, in terms of how far they are off from their 52-week lows, especially since this is sort of a value call. Um, AMD is up about 40 percent from its 52-week low. NVIDIA, another name, up about 35 percent. Intel is supposed to be a value name, too, John. It's only up about 5 percent from that low. So it's interesting to see um, sort of more brokerages jump on a name that still is relatively expensive. Yes, indeed. Um, (laughs) But, hey, they've got a battle from here, right, AMD included. And so, you yeah. know, in this, in this tight market, we'll see who's able to innovate. It's still a long game. Yeah, who's taking market share, too. Uh, after the break, crypto's influence in Washington, the impact on policy. Do not go away. That's a good story. Crypto industry's influence in Washington is growing. CNBC's Brian Schwartz out with a new piece detailing how crypto executives poured more than $30 million into political campaigns, campaigns excuse me, since the 2020 election cycle. He joins us now to discuss. Brian, put this number in context for us. $30 million is a large amount, especially when you consider that Alphabet alone spent about $10 million on lobbying last year. Yeah, you're right. It's a lot of money. And it's it, thanks for having me. It's a ton of money, uh, really, when you look at how the crypto space has evolved into this lobbying juggernaut over the last few years. And it really has been uh, since the election, the, the, we're talking about the presidential election, 2020 election, uh, and through these 2022 midterms where the donations have really skyrocketed. And so has the lobbying effort by the crypto space. They have gained a foothold in Washington. We have a lot of details in this of the story on CNBC.com. But the bottom line here is the money that we've seen go into political action committees and toward campaigns themselves has really led to a really boom in lobbying by crypto leaders, executives, and their representatives who have flooded Capitol Hill, who have flooded the halls of Congress with their priorities, as really lawmakers are trying to figure out how to regulate uh, the crypto industry. Well, Brian, I wonder though, with crypto tanking the way it has been over the last few weeks and months, there are a lot of voters who've been burned here. So uh, it's gonna be interesting to see which wins out. Politicians who wanna make their constituents feel better about you know, not taking that kind of risk versus those who might end up getting hit, perhaps even in attack ads, uh, with the suggestion that they've turned a blind eye to an issue that some lobbyists have wanted them to ignore. 
Yeah, that's true. But there's another side of that coin as well here, right? I mean, that's really comes down to the questions of do lawmakers on the Hill really understand crypto? I mean, this has been the ongoing discussion on Capitol Hill for a long time. I was speaking to somebody on the House Financial Services Committee, and you know, he gave me a really good statistic uh, from his view, which is in his mind, based on the conversations he's had with people on that committee. It's a very powerful committee. It's about 54 members. His estimate was that only half of the people on that committee fully understand crypto. That is an amazing statistic. Mm -hmm. You know, when you look at how the key powerful committee in the House, how it's question marks is if the people who are supposed to be putting these bills together or working on these things, if they really understand this, this business at all. That, that is an amazing stat. I know CZ, uh, the Binance CEO, uh, told me not too long ago that he thinks there should be an entirely new regulatory body to understand crypto. Um, in terms of the issue being partisan or not, Brian, I know there's, you know, politicians on both sides of the aisle who either sort of believe in it or don't at all and say that it's riddled with scams. Um, any indication of where the money's going in terms of party lines? Well, you know, when you, it depends on who you speak to and who you look at. When you look at somebody like Sam Bankman fried you know, a lot of his money, who is really the chief executive and leader at FTX, a lot of his money is, uh, is going to a super PAC that, is, that have, has generally been helping uh, Democrats. But there are other executives in his company who are also trying to help Republicans. So it really depends on, on, on where you look. Uh, Anthony Scaramucci, who's a, a big uh, supporter of crypto, has also been involved with, with donations in these midterms. So it just depends on you know, where their priorities land and and what Mm -hmm. party they want to support. Brian, it's a fascinating piece. Thanks for being with us. And that full piece is up on CNBC.com. Also, don't forget that you can watch Crypto World weekdays by going to CNBC.com slash Crypto World. John? As we have to break, another big interview today you'll only find on CNBC. Robinhood CEO Vlad Tenev sitting down with our Kate Rooney at 2.30 p.m. Eastern. A conversation, once again, you do not want to miss. Tech Check is back in a moment. Companies are facing very different challenges when it comes to payroll. Intel shareholders voting against the compensation package of CEO Pat Gelsinger in a non-binding vote. Then there's Coinbase finally saying it will slow hiring in this down cycle, as a number of companies have been doing so. That stock lower by nearly 75 percent this year. Flip side, though, John, Microsoft announcing a raft of pay increases as inflation rises and the labor market tightens. Pays to have cash in this environment. Yeah, I mean, I don't think that's necessarily on the flip side, D. I think what's underlying all of this is that if you want to retain the employees that you have, if you're Coinbase, you can't hire more. If you're Microsoft, you got to pay more. Well, that does it for Tech Check. The Halftime Report starts now. You've been listening to CNBC's Tech Check. You can always catch us live weekdays at 11 a.m. Feel the pulse of the city. Feel the beat of the drum. Feel the bass blow your hair. In Las Vegas, live music delivers much more than sound. It's where music comes alive. With artists like Megan Thee Stallion, Maroon 5, Carrie Underwood, Shania Twain, Babyface, Lionel Richie, and many more. Every show is a playground for your senses. See the full summer lineup at visitlasvegas.com. 